Let's pray one more time. Thank you, Lord, for your word now. We pray you would bless it and that you would speak to our hearts through it. We thank you for the letter to the Corinthians, Lord, and we pray that our lives would be molded and shaped by it, God. We want to be a, a bright light and a dark place, and uh, so help us to do that well, O oh God. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys, we, we sang that little chorus, So Lord, You're Beautiful, uh, Keith Green. I don't know if he wrote it, but he's he's the one I know of, of singing it. But you know the little the next little part that after uh, there's there's two of those little verses. Oh Lord, you're beautiful. Your face is all I seek, and when uh, your eyes are upon this child, your your grace abounds to me. Uh, the second word is uh, Oh Lord, please light the fire that now burns bright and clear. Replace the lamp of my first love. No, replace the lamp. I can't remember how that one goes. That's why I didn't sing it. <laughs> but then there's a little bridge part that says, um, I want to take your word and shine it all around, but first help me to live it, Lord. And if I'm doing well, help me to never seek the crown, for my reward is giving glory to you. And, uh, and as I was praying, really the Corinthian church, I mean, it was established um, in a dark place. Corinth was the, the clashing of many cultures, and we said it was a port city, and, and so many different beliefs and, and many different frivolities came into play. Uh, lots of partying, lots of um, exchange of you name it, uh, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, basically, back in the day. Uh, that happened in Corinth, and so it was a dark place, and, um, and, and this little light was established by Paul as he was on his missionary journeys. And, uh, and, and so as they wanted to shine brightly there in Corinth, that's how I feel about Calvary Chapel Columbus here in, in Columbus. And, and I likened Corinth to Columbus. We are in the midst of a, a culture clash. I think, I think I read in Wikipedia, so who knows if it's actually true, but something like there are 285 languages spoken in Columbus. There, there are roughly 1.8 million people. There's a, there's a, a, a the largest single campus university uh, here. The, there's lots of things going on. There's clashes of cultures, all kinds of different religions here in this place. And, and Calvary Chapel Columbus, just like the church at Corinth, we need to be a beacon of light to the city around us. And so we can't get bogged down as, as, as the church in Corinth did. That's why Paul was writing the letter, because they, they had gotten bogged down. They had, had, had been somewhat overcome by the ways of the world. They had, um, and so Paul needed to correct, and Paul needed to administer some, some, uh, Smackdown, if you would, and get these guys kind of organized and, and right. And so, um, so that's what this letter is about. So let's reread a little bit. And Carla, I forgot to pray for Celia. So hopefully remind me at the end. Uh, one of our sisters uh, is uh, on her way home. And, uh, and so we want to pray for her uh, tonight. So remind me, if you would, family, pray for Celia when we're done. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, 
called saints. I'm going to leave that to be out. It wasn't in the original. Called saints with all who are in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus that you were enriched in everything by him, in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. I love that. Just real quickly, Paul, whenever possible, he wants to insert, hey, remember, Jesus Christ is coming back. He did it often as we read through Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and especially First and Second Thessalonians, every chapter just about. But even here in, in the letter to Corinth, not one not necessarily focused on the return of Jesus in verse 7, hey, e- eagerly we're waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 8, who will also confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And now the correction begins. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius lest any of you should say that I had baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanas. Beside, I don't know whether I baptized any other. (laughs) Paul's like, I can't remember. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. And that's right where we left off. And I love that verse, um, and really, the, the rest of the chapter is going to kind of speak to that truth. Um, you'll recall, before Paul had been in Corinth, he was in Athens. And while he was in Athens, the, the approach that he chose to take in order to, to share the gospel was he, he, the, the sermon, on, um, the Mars Hill sermon in Acts 17. And, and while he was there, he, he tried to... He tried to wax philosophical. He tried to, uh, you know, pontificate uh, uh, all these this wise stuff, and he tried to draw from their culture and 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 make the gospel relevant to them. And and you know what? Sometimes that works, and and so most of the time it doesn't. And that's what he found in Athens. There, there wasn't a great harvest. There wasn't a great work done in Athens. Some people did get saved, but it wasn't what he expected. And so I can imagine as he's making the journey from Athens after he had been kicked out of there and working his way toward Corinth, he's like, what am I going to do different? How, how am I going to change this up? Because that wasn't as effective as I'd hoped it'd be. That wasn't, I, I didn't bring as, God as much glory as I wanted to there in Athens. So what would I do different? 
And what he comes up with is what we see there in verse 17. I came to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. He said, you know what? I'm going to step back and I'm going to try to push myself out of the picture as much as possible and just simply teach or preach the cross of Christ, not with wisdom of words so that, so that I would stand in the way of the gospel. What Paul said is, I'm going to simplify everything. And I like that because I'm a simple man. I mean, I, I, I barely have a, a, a collegiate education. I have an associate's degree in electronics of all things. You know, <laughs> I don't even use it anymore. Just finished. I think Dave Jarvis texted me today. He's like, um, he finished playing off his uh, student loans some 20 years later. And he's like, just like Jesus said, to tell a story, you know, from the cross, it is finished. He finished paying his student loans. And I don't know if you're in that boat or not, but to have to pay student loans 20 years after you had gone to college is a bit rough. I did it, for, I think, for 13 years on a two-year education. It makes you wonder if it's really worth it. I, I don't even use it. But, so I'm a simple guy. I, I've always been relatively simple. And, and And God can use that. If we're just humble in that, if we're just... Uh, willing to say, Lord, it's all for your glory. Let me stand out of the way. Then, then God can bless that. Um, when Peter and John were were proclaiming the good news in the book of Acts, as they gave, as Peter gave the sermon in Acts chapter two and three, at the end of that, what does it say? The the people that heard him took note that they were untrained, unschooled men, but that they had been with Jesus. I'm just like, that's my life. That's, that's who I want to be. It's not that I don't I, I have anything against going to school. I think school is a good thing, if, and education is a great thing. But I would rather people notice that I've been with Jesus than what the, the plaque on my wall says. And, and so that's what Paul decides here in Corinth, and, and, and to great effect, many things happen. He's not preaching with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. And now he speaks to that idea, starting our new text in verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Does that make sense to you? Does that, that's the way it is. It, before you came to Christ, before you had a, a saving knowledge of your of your God, it sounded preposterous, didn't it? That God would come to earth, that that He would take on the the, the image of a man, that He would become a man, and that He would live a, a perfect life the way a God should, but then take a, 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 a death, and not just any death. I mean, it wasn't a dignified death. The cross was, a, it was an instrument of death, and it was, but it wasn't just, uh, like I said, a dignified death. This was how they treated criminals. This was you know, public humiliation. You, you hung from a cross naked. It was, it was disgraceful. God did that so that he 
might have a relationship with, with something that he created, that, that sounds absolutely insane. Unless you're being saved by it. And then it becomes the power of God. When, our, when the, the scriptures would say that the, the veil is removed from our heart, that, that our, our hearts are open to the truth of God in that moment, in that, in that time when that happens, then the, the cross makes all the sense in the world. It, it, it fulfills what the scriptures had said. It's, it's, it's a, a fulfillment of, of a perfect plan that he was a, a sacrifice, a necessary sacrifice for a just God. And, and God in His justice and in His perfection demanded that this sacrifice be exacted, that a, a perfect sacrifice happen. And the only way it could have is for God to come and die on our behalf. No animal was good enough. It, it covered for a moment, for a time, but it had to be perpetuated. It had to be continued on. No, no human would have been a perfect sacrifice because we are all blemished by sin. We, we all have been marked by, by what sin is. And so we, had we thrown ourselves on the cross in order to appease a just God, he would say it's not good enough because we're, we're imperfect. So it only makes sense that Christ came and that, that he died on our behalf. It is the power of God for those who are being saved. But to those who are not, those who are perishing, it is foolishness. Does that make sense? You with me? Verse 19, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has God not, has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. This is, this is interesting as we, we consider what, what's Paul trying to get at? Why is he railing on this in comparison and comparing the, the, the foolishness of man with the wisdom of God? Or he's even going to say the foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of man, which we know God is not foolish in any way. But he's just, it's a compare and contrast to say God's ways are higher than our ways. Why bother with that, Paul? We, I mean, you and I, we tend to understand that. Well, I think what was happening in this day, and if we can draw in what we're, we're kind of gleaning on Sundays a little bit, I think the Corinthian church, after Paul left, started to look around and started to see this vastly interesting and vastly entertaining culture. And they said, I want to be like that. I like the pattern that the Corinthians are laying down. And I want to be like that. And, and so they allowed some of the Corinthian way to, to creep back into the church and to, to taint what, what Paul had established there. And so he says, 
As Paul now writing says, don't do that. Why, why are you trying to look like the world? Why are you trying to act like the world? It's foolishness is what he's going to say. As you compare and contrast the, 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 like it says, as he's quoting Isaiah in verse 19 there, he's quoting Isaiah. He says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. God is, God is saying, I'm going to get rid of that. Quit, quit looking to the world and considering them wise. Because I'm going to destroy it is what God says. So why would you consider them wise? My ways are higher. It pleased God, verse 21, through the foolishness of the message, the message of the cross, that those might be saved, those who believe. I like verse 20. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? He's, he's like, quit, quit laying your pattern down, uh, your material down on their pattern. Quit trying to look like them. Be in the world, but not of the world. He's essentially saying the gospel, the, the truth of the gospel is not obtained through wisdom. You don't get the gospel by learning it. You get the gospel by believing it, by having faith in it. And through faith comes knowledge. He's like, you know, quit, quit laying down your, quit aspiring to just merely the wisdom of the world, because I'm going to destroy that. Verse 22, for the Jews request a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. And that was what was common in those days. As the Jews awaited their Messiah, though he had already come in Jesus, they refused to see that. Why? Because they were expecting that God was going to act in the way that he had already. They were like, I got the pattern figured out, God. You brought us up out of Egypt. You, you had the mass exodus and you delivered us into the promised land. And here we sit in the midst of, of captivity, in the midst of Babylon, in the midst of uh, rebuilding Jerusalem, waiting for our Savior. We're under the oppression of Rome now. You're going to do the same thing. God, you're going you're gonna to deliver us just like you did back in Exodus. I bet there's going to be even 10 plague, plagues, they would say. I, I bet that's the way it's going to go. And, 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 and our Messiah will come and, and lift us into a political position of victory. And so that's why Jesus, there's no way Jesus could have been the Messiah because what did he do? He never, he never raised the Jewish race or never, never established them the way that they thought he was going to. He came and died. Well, it's their lack of knowledge. It's their lack of understanding that led them to believe that. They didn't understand the prophecies of bruised reed. Uh, uh, a, by his stripes, we will be healed. They, they, they didn't acknowledge those. They didn't understand those. And so they expected a sign that, that this Messiah would come and, and raise the Jewish nation back to the, the great thing that it had been just after the Exodus. And the Greeks, they sought after wisdom. They, they were constantly gaining knowledge and, and trying to improve knowledge. And so when one comes with the message of, well, there was a God who became a man and who died for you, 
That's dumb. That's, that's foolishness. There's no way that could be the truth because it's not wise enough. The Jews were awaiting deliverance. The Greeks sought higher thought. But that's not the answer. Verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block. And to the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. We preach Christ crucified, it says in verse 23. We preach Christ crucified. I'm repeating it intentionally because you and I spill that off our tongues so easily. Christ was crucified. Yes, he was, but consider that. The Messiah, that's what Christ means. The one who has come to save has been put through a disgusting, humiliating death. And it sounds like foolishness unless you're being saved by it. To the Jews, it is a stumbling block because they were expecting political power. And to the Greeks, foolishness because no God would do that. But of those who are called, it doesn't matter where they come from. If you're called, Christ then becomes the power of God and the wisdom of God. That veil has been removed. Now look at verse 25. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Love that. That that. God's ways, and that's what the Old Testament would say, God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts, right? That um, is a Hebrews, I think, that says the earth is his footstool. All of the earth, you and I, everybody is, is, is below the feet of Christ. He is above us all in that. And so he says the foolishness of God. Is God a fool? Please say no. Thank you. God is not a fool. Is he, is he weak? No, he's not weak either. So he's just using, he's, he's using anthropomorphic language here is what he's doing. He's, just, he's, he's trying to put it into a, a term that I would, uh, you and I would understand to say, you know, the foolish is not, as the, the bottom of God's barrel, his, his quote-unquote foolishness, which is impossible, he's not foolishness at all, is, is wiser than the wisest of men and the, the weakness of God. If he, if he had given up everything, is stronger than the strongest of men, is what he's saying. There, there's no comparison. It's, it's uh, just trying to give you a picture. His ways are so much higher than ours. Um. There's a story that uh, Albert Einstein was teaching a class. And uh, as he was instructing this class, the, the class was discussing several different things, and they, they came to the conclusion in and of themselves that they were intelligent enough to determine that there was no God. That this class, as, as putting their collective thought and their collective knowledge together under Albert Einstein, would say, we believe that we can safely determine that there is no God. 
And so Albert Einstein asks them a question. As you guys collectively gather your knowledge, how much of all the world's knowledge do you possess together? How much of the world's knowledge do you possess as he asked his class? And so they thought about it and they came back with a number and they said, we believe that we have 5% of the world's knowledge right here in this classroom. Between all of us, we know at least 5% of everything of all the knowledge in the world. And if you think about that for a minute, even that is preposterous. And that's what Albert Einstein would say. That he said, that's, that's probably generous that you would think you know 5% of all the world's knowledge. And so then he asked them this question. So then, if you do know the 5%, if you truly know the 5% of the world's knowledge, is it possible that God exists in the other 95% you do not know? Yeah. Yeah, it certainly is. And so, consider your position. The, the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisest of men. The weakness of God is stronger than the strongest of men. As he's, he's trying to open their eyes, this church, to the, the folly that they have fallen to in wanting to become more like the world, what he's trying to do then is build a grander picture in their hearts of God. And that is the, the hope and the aim of every teacher and of every preacher. That as we, as we teach and as we instruct and as we preach the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ, the, the end goal should be that we would make much of God and that we would make little of man. That that God would be made much of, that He would be exalted, that He would be magnified, and that man would be made low. That's, that's success in a teacher and a preacher's eyes. I said it um, as we prayed on Sunday morning, something that spoke to my heart as, I, as I'm learning how to be a teacher and a preacher and, and lead a church. Then uh, it just made a whole lot of sense to me. They said, uh, see if I can get this right. If, if people leave your church saying what a great church we have or what a great pastor we have or what great music we have, as a church, you failed. If people leave your church saying what a great God we have, then we've succeeded. And that should be true of our lives as well as we look to be a beacon of light in this, in this dark land. As people interact with us, if people leave us and say, that sounds like a good God, then we've succeeded. May we point toward Him. And that's, that's what He's trying to do here is, is lift their eyes from the muck and the mire of the world that looked so appealing to them. They, they wanted to chase after these things. And he, he wants to say, no, God's way, the church, God's plan is far better, is far greater than anything the world has to offer. You don't have to lay your material down on the pattern of this world, church, because His way is so much better. His foolishness is greater 
than the wisdom of the wise. All right, finishing up the chapter. Verse 26, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, nor many mighty, nor many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put the shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised. God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. I love that. God, God often first and foremost goes to the, what the world would consider the weak, what the world would consider the despised, what the world would consider the downcast. God goes to first. We saw it in the, in the birth of Christ. Did he go to the kings first? Did he go to the wise men first? Did he send the star to them first? No. Where did he go first? To the shepherds to the, the outcasts, those that, that didn't even have homes, those that lived among the animals to, to declare the glory that the, the king of kings had been born. He, he goes to the outcast. He goes to the lowly. As you look at the church in India now and today, it's exploding. It's, 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 they say 12 churches a week starting growing and growing that the men are stepping up to be pastors left and right who is the church in india growing among the most the the bottom class and what are, i can't remember what they're called the dalits yes the the uh, india has a class system for people and the, and the dalits are those that that, that aren't even worthy of, of spitting on and that's the largest group of people in India. And, and that is where the church is growing. That's where the, the, the gospel is, is being received, the, going to the least. Now, that's not to say he excludes kings, because certainly we saw even in the birth of, of Christ, the wise men did come. But often he goes to, like he said, the foolish things, the weak things, the base things, First, why? Uh, underline verse 29. So that no flesh should glory in his presence. Anytime we would want to take glory in and of ourselves or for ourselves, we're robbing it from the one who deserves it. God is the one that deserves not just some of the glory, but all of the glory. And so anytime we would puff ourselves up with pride enough to say that I deserve a little bit of glory, we're stealing it from the one who does. And so he goes to the weak and he goes to the humble, those that have been humbled by the world, because they understand the humble position that we need to have in order for God to receive all the glory that he deserves. Verse 30, finishing up the chapter. But of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. It is his grace. It is his wisdom. It is his strength. It is his righteousness. It is his sanctification. It is his redemption. 
It's all His. We don't deserve any of the credit. We don't deserve any of the glory. It's let Him who glories glory in the work of the Lord because Christ Jesus became that for us. Hopefully we understand righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Those are words we we throw around pretty commonly. If you're still not fully clear on the definition of those, I I won't take the time right now, but I'd be happy to talk to you about those. And we've, we've done that as we've gone through the different Pauline epistles. But He is our righteousness. He makes us pure. He is our sanctification as we walk with Him, and He is the one who redeems. So He gets all the glory. Amen? Amen. That's chapter 1. We'll press into chapter 2 next week. All right. You guys okay? All right. I'm tired. It still feels like, well, right now in Ethiopia, it's 3 o'clock in the morning, so Kindu's nice and asleep. All right, let's rise and pray. Pray for Celia. Thank you. See, I would have forgotten again. Oh, Lord of God, we humbly, humbly, humbly come before you because that's our rightful position. And we thank you, O God, for your grace and your mercy that, Jesus, you became for us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And we don't want to glory in ourselves, God. We want to bring you praise. We want to live our lives humbly before you showing this world that there is a greater pattern, there is a better way. The gospel is higher, even though it seems foolishness, Lord. Help us to preach Christ crucified as Paul did. Give us strength. Give us boldness, Lord, that we would come out of our shells, that we wouldn't consider ourselves um, greater than we ought, that we would humble ourselves and just simply speak the truth to those around us, oh God. I want to do, I do want to pray for Celia tonight, God. She is on uh, death's doorstep, but this is a daughter of yours, one that you know, oh God, and if it be your will, we pray that she would pass peaceably from this life to uh, life with you, oh God. We ask, Father, if, if your hand would be in it, that you would heal her, God, and that this would be a miraculous turnaround, Lord, to be that close that she might explain to her family the the greatness of our God. We ask, Father, that in this hard time that you would be with her family, her sister Lois and and, and her children and and her her extended family, O God, that you would bring them peace, Lord, that you would bring them comfort. We thank you that we've been able to come around them and that Carla was able to visit, that Russ was able to visit today, God. And we pray, God, that uh, they would know that their church family is praying with them and for them. Lord, until we can meet again, I pray that you would give us your grace and your peace, that you would give us your strength, that we may honor you and glorify you each and every day. Love you, Lord, in Jesus' name.